What did Joao make of your body fat percentage? Uh, we didn't discuss that, but uh, he's he's quite gentle. He was quite gentle, not not sexually, quite gentle with me in terms of the way he's worried about me. You know, because my heart can. He's worried about me mm. dying. I think in his gym. So even though he saved my life, he is concerned that if he pushes me too much, especially when I'm doing shoulders, I have a lot of problems with shoulders. Not problems with shoulders, but when I do them, it tends to send me a bit do lally. So he's very, very careful when I do shoulders. So he, he, um, yeah, he was, yeah, he didn't say I was looking portly or anything, but uh, yeah, we the training was excellent. So you struggle with shoulders. How are you with heads, knees, and toes? <laughs> excellent. Always have been. <laughs> And that was even before I started training with Joe. Oh, is he? Is, have you anglicised? Is he just Joe now? We is call him Joe. Joe. Well, Nicky calls him Joe. So uh, if people call him Joe. Joe. Everyone, even all the Portuguese people call him Joe. So, yeah. So it's just maybe Joe. He, maybe he's just called Joe. No, no, no. And he's Joao Branco, which is basically John White. Maybe he's actually called, just called Joe White, and he's pretending to be Portuguese to, to <laughs> lure in unsuspecting foreign idiots. What, by living in Portugal for the whole of his life and speaking fluent Portuguese? It's the long con. I'd say, well, that's, that's clever. It's clever. Deep he's deep cover. Deep, deep cover there. It's good to have you back, though, mate. Well, yeah. Missed you. Um, Missed you last week. But you're away next week, aren't you? Paris. You're going to Paris. I'm Paris. planning on going, planning on going to Paris. I am depending on PSG's accreditation procedure and the British government's travel advice. Uh-huh. I will not do anything if it's against the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's travel advice, which for a long time, even before the pandemic, was just don't go there. <laughs> have you, you got any? Have you got any nuclear submarines to sell? Because they'll definitely let you in then. I do. I did have a couple. Yeah. But then it was skipped in market, and mm. I thought that's a good place to shift them. Yeah. Man. Alongside the dog beds and the high-vis vests. <laughs> nuclear sub, anyone? No, anyone for a nuclear sub? You don't mean you don't... There is a canal in Skipton, so you can yeah. you can sail it. <laughs> down down the Leeds, Liverpool. Do you think you could get a submarine down that canal? Do you think Unlikely. You'd, could you get a nuclear submarine down the Leeds, Liverpool canal? In, um, how would you deal with the locked gates? That would be my question. <laughs> Ed said... When I took Ed for a, a day trip on... The, it's really nice. It's like, a, it's like, a, it's like four quid. To get a, a bar, like a flat bottom, I don't know if it's a barge, it's like a boat that goes on a canal, um, but it's got a motor. And they kind of take you up the canal for a bit, and they take you down the canal for a bit, and then they say, you can't go down there, just the castle wall collapsed, so we can't do that. And it's a really nice day, and he had a really nice time. But at one point he said to me, Daddy, what's that? And I said, oh, that's an old lock gate. And he said to me, what's a lock gate? And I thought, it's to do with the water going up and down, but I mm. have no idea beyond that. So I had, I had to kind of fudge it. There's a lot of fudging in my education of Ed. And I don't quite know how to, how to, should I be like, revise? Do you have, should, should I revise? <laughs> Did you Ed, just explain that canals can't go up and down hills? Well, I don't know what a lot gate therefore, is. Therefore, well, it's because the, you have to, you know, every so often you have to have a step up. Yeah. So that the it's the problem with water when you have a hill. The water level. tends to run to the bottom of the hill, doesn't it? It sort of finds yeah. its own level. Yeah, I don't know whether you've, yeah. you, you did it's any strange. of that. That's cool. Mm. Uh, Ed, uh, not Ed, Steve, what yeah. was onto your wrist? Um, oh, just sort of general sort of tomfoolery with the children. Right. I've just sprained it ever so slightly. It's, 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 it's a precaution more than anything. <laughs> sprained it ever so slightly, but he's got a massive cast on it <laughs> to make sure he gets as much attention as possible. Is that a massive cast? Yeah, big, big, so just for, for listeners, it's, a, it's like a big white cast running all the way down his wrist. <laughs> all the way up to his shoulder. Encompassing the, the shoulder, the knees and the toes. 
and everybody he's ever met has signed it. It's amazing, really, I can get this good a Wi-Fi connection in an NHS hospital. Uh, this is Set Piece Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Farris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, fluent in the language of English, Rory Smith, fluido en el idioma español, and Andy Hinchcliffe, fluente na lingua de joao. <laughs> Go figure. The food is um, supplied by Rory because he's at his parents' house. And I said earlier before we started recording that, recording that that means you're getting food from them. However, the food is actually provided by somewhere near your parents, which is why you visit your parents so much. Well, no, so the, I visit my parents a lot because I'm an, I'm an attentive son. That's why I visit my parents. Um, partly also just we've got painters in our house, so everyone's a mess. This uh, story has been revised slightly well, no, there's, there's from lots before of different... we press record. I lead, a, you know, a com- I have a lot of things going on, Steve. So the painters are in, which means Kate's downstairs working, which means I keep getting disturbed. Uh, also, my mum's in Paris seeing my sister. Uh, so my dad's on his own, so I was, I was instructed to come and check on your dad because my mum's not 100% convinced that he can feed himself. <laughs> Uh, and I thought what I'll do is I'll drive over, I'll go to the 1066 Delhi, which for anyone who's passing through this part of West Yorkshire is amazing, and get a chicken tikka, tzatziki, mango chutney and salad sandwich on a beautiful twisted white cob uh, and have that for my lunch because I love them. I think they're, I mean, they're, they're cost like four quid, but you get a lot of sandwich for your money. Mm. So that's what I'm having for lunch, and I'm very excited about it. In fact, I'm, I'm so excited about it that I will probably not eat it whilst we're recording because I want to actually enjoy it. So that's the food, and no doubt we are all salivating at the prospect of Rory enjoying it on his own. Uh, the football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Not a clue! <laughs> Thanks for paying attention. I've been away for a while, so it might take me a, a, you know, a couple of sentences to get up to speed. Have you not switched back over from your Portuguese SIM card, Chinch? Are the, the WhatsApps not coming through? Uh, no, they are coming through. I just ignore them. Well, we are reflecting on one of the most prolific and popular English footballers. Jimmy Greaves has died, leaving behind him a legacy which was created just long enough ago for a lot of people to forget just how astonishing his goal-scoring record was. But we're asking how we strike the right balance between those achievements from history compared to those much heralded in a much changed modern game. So that is to come. You can get in touch with the podcast, of course, via email on setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Here's Stuart Levy doing exactly that. Dear Cappuccino, Latte, Flat White and Builder's Tea. A few weeks ago, a colleague and I launched a podcast focusing on sports and the media. At some point in the pod, I realised that I was struggling for content, so I started referring to the most recent podcast that I had listened to, Set Piece Menu. As part of my Twitter campaign to promote the finished episode, I tweeted the guys of SPM with a link to the pod, hoping maybe for a friendly like from Wyeth or Ferris, but I assumed the chief soccer correspondent of the New York Times would have been too busy to take a look at it. A couple of weeks later, I see that there is an article in the New York Times going viral about why everyone is talking about Ibai Janos, the exact topic of my podcast. Before clicking on, the, clicking on the article, I thought that maybe it would be in the media or gaming section. So I was very surprised to see that it was none other than Rory who had written this article. So back to an SPM context. If a squirrel is bestowed on those who suggest a topic or thread for the podcast, what do I get for suggesting a New York Times article topic? Or is it purely a coincidence that Rory wrote about this and a good sign for our budding podcast that we are talking about the right content? Many thanks, Stuart, whose podcast is called 21 for 21. Uh, very much option B on that. <laughs> I, 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 did, I did see Stuart tweeting me, uh, accusing me of plagiarism. Uh, that is not what happened. We, we just had the same idea. It happens sometimes. It's, um, you know, that's life. And I would say that that encourages both of us uh, 
to think that uh, we're on the right lines. What I would say is that if you don't make any content about eBay Janos, is get him to tweet it. Because I tweeted the link to that piece with eBay uh, and sometime in the morning, the day it was published, and went out to watch Hector and it had like six retweets and 40 likes or so. You know, it, no one gave a flying sh- basically <laughs> that would be that would be unbelievable traffic for my twitter feed but on you go <laughs> um and then i at some point in my walk with hector as i rounded the um the iron footbridge that hector suddenly about three weeks ago decided that he was scared of and now refuses to walk across uh he ebay must have tweeted it and by the time i got back it had about 800 retweets and 10,000 likes and my phone had melted in my pocket. Uh, and so I would suggest just get eBay on board and you're flying. He's got 5.6 million followers and they love, they really genuinely love him. Although the flip side of that is I now keep being contacted by people who want me to promote their esports teams. That's not what I'm in the game for. It's not <laughs> the, going to be happening. Stuart's accusation, which I take umbrage with in amongst all that, is a suggestion that Rory works harder than any of the rest of us. I mean, I have twice as many children for a start. Yeah, that's true. That's before we even get to the work schedule. Yeah, but Katie does a lot of heavy lifting. Why do people assume that Rory is the hardest working of us? Maybe I I think what is probably fair, Stephen, is that I am the least organised of us. So I am the most chaotic. That is how I would would present it. He, He has correspondent in his job title. That means that lots of people behind the scenes do his work for him. That is not true. His name to it. Uh, it's, not like a factory. Know, it's not like a factory. It's not like it's not like it's by the school. Like my, it's not like by the school of Rory Smith. Like if it's just something I can't be asked with, I get one of the one of the lackeys to do it. Like, like Mike. You know, I'm not comparing myself to Michelangelo, but like one of those. Well, it's it's not you know I mean? it's not the first time that you've conjured up the name of Michelangelo or Leonardo da Vinci in order to make your point. Um, so clearly, it's a little bit front of mind. I was referring to the turtle. Uh, Alice Allen has emailed about SPM 247. Hi all, enjoyed the pod on the women's game. Therefore, it was topical when watching the England-Poland match that my boyfriend, millennial, cultured, United season ticket holder, asked me who Emma Hayes was. I wouldn't say I follow women's football that closely, but more than my other half. Unfortunately, it will obviously take some time for women, even those who have played or managed, to be taken as seriously as men by the average football fan when they are analysing the men's game. That's from Alice. Tom Sherrington has something on the recent England coverage as well. Dear Andy, Steve, Hugh and Rory, he says conventionally. Firstly, ITV commentator Sam Matterface mentioned during England's recent qualifier against Hungary that uh, Gareth Southgate was considering making several, if not wholesale, changes for England's next game against Andorra. Following your discussion a few weeks ago, I wonder when on the numbering scale you feel that several progresses to the point of being wholesale. Wholesale has to be at least seven. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't it? Wholesale yeah. changes yeah. have to be at least seven. So I would say that several is what, four to s- four, five or six in, in a football context? Several, several I'd say several's six. about three, three or four. Well, two is a couple of changes. But where's multiple? Three or fit multiple. Well, don't, don't bring multiple into it. But wholesale, three. yeah, seven plus is wholesale, isn't it? I'd say four, four, five, six is several changes, seven plus is wholesale. You've got to, you're, you're only ringing changes if you're doing more than seven. 
Uh, Secondly, onto your discussion last week about the Saturday 3pm blackout. As a fan of an EFL club myself, I'm generally sympathetic to the reasons behind the blackout. However, I wonder if a slightly more flexible approach could have been tried this season rather than simply reverting back to the exact same model as existed in March 2020. For instance, I read about a case of a disabled Hereford supporter who had hardly ever been able to watch his team at the stadium but enjoyed being able to pay a tenner and sit and watch the game at home on iFollow for the whole of last season. There must be other supporters, a wholesale number perhaps, who have moved away from a particular area for work or family reasons and so can't get along to watch their team in person as much as they'd like. Supporters who can't get to away matches due to limited ticket capacity, older supporters who are becoming frailer and struggle to travel outside as much, or people reluctant to attend mass gatherings whilst COVID cases remain high. I wonder if continuing to provide the streaming service on iFollow would have been an appropriate way of helping to make the games more accessible to a wider group of people and offered EFL clubs some additional income beyond matchday ticket revenue, which I believe is the approach being taken in Scotland this season. In terms of the competition that top-level games would provide, it would be interesting to know exactly what the evidence for this is. The 3pm games on Saturday the 25th of September, for instance, are Leeds against West Ham, Leicester against Burnley, Everton against Norwich and Watford against Newcastle. Would those fixtures make a significant difference to lower league attendances? There are plenty of games away from Saturday 3 o'clock that currently clash on Sundays, bank holidays and midweek evenings. How much impact will games like PSG against Manchester City and Juventus against Chelsea next week have on lower league attendances those evenings as a comparison? Keep up the great nuanced discussion. That's from Tom. Now we have a couple more on this, so we will uh, draw them all together at the end. Alex Ufton writes... Hi, Bluey, Bingo, Muffin and Socks. Long-time listener, first-time caller. I very much enjoyed SBM 248 on traditions and anachronisms. A point that I think was missed on the 3pm blackout is the stop on local radio being broadcast on the internet. I'm a Derby County fan for my sins and had a season ticket when I lived at home. I tried to follow every match as much as possible. However, this has made very difficult now living outside the bounds of the BBC Radio Derby broadcast range. I feel it's very unfair that I'm forced to pay £5 a month to be able to listen to something that everyone that lives within range gets for free in this day and age surely having the stream blocked over the internet is a bit archaic sorry to moan alex often p.s i live in oxfordshire nowadays and here is richard cook this spring summer autumn and winter regarding spm 248 one of the biggest challenges i face being a blackpool fan is seeing our games i live in scotland In the Outer Hebrides, in fact, I can't access any of our games, either in the same way as those living in Lancashire. I feel it's hard to stay connected with my football team without being able to watch our games that kick off at three o'clock. There should be some geographical dispensation. We have a summer league in our islands and it would not be adversely affected. I used to go to home and away matches before I moved 17 years ago, but it's very expensive to go away and watch these games, even just to get to mainland Scotland, before you take into account the cost of the game itself. Hopefully you read this out despite its length. Keep up the great work. Richard Cook. Well, Richard, it's a lot shorter than a lot that we get. So there we go. That's Richard Cook, Alex Ufton, and before that, Tom Sherrington. There, there will always be extremities that sit outside what you would consider to be the, the, the general situation that people find themselves in. I guess it's hard to, to put in place a system for those extreme examples that both Tom and and Richard, in terms of a Blackpool fan living in the Outer Hebrides, to put something in place for those exceptions would be, you'd imagine, a little bit difficult. But at the same time, we must have technology now to, to like, do what they do in the States and do, like, localised blackouts. So there's no reason that if you're dialing in from an IP address in the Outer Hebrides that you can't get... BBC Radio Blackpool or whatever. Yeah, because there's absolutely no evidence whatsoever of people being able to uh, mask IP addresses. I've heard that that is impossible, yeah. 
and that is the, the, the local radio that's a long running thing the local radio thing that Alex talked about and, and that perhaps is offers an insight as to why that is difficult because that effectively I believe from my time working in local radio is an issue regarding needing to geo-block the coverage so that people can't tune in from outside of the UK so they simply have to block it being available via BBC Sounds full stop there is no way of just geo-blocking from a localised point of view. They, they need to either do it nationally or internationally. So that is why the coverage, local radio coverage, is not available online or via the BBC Sounds app. And finally, Bryn Griffiths, who you might remember is our poet in residence. Um, he's not resident or indeed that much of a poet, but still, he's back. As requested, here is your limerick on the subject of Ivan Tony. I don't remember asking for this. I think, Chinch, we might have mentioned this is a, a, a possible subject of Limerick after talking about Glenn Murray on the previous Limerick. So this goes back a few weeks, but Bryn is back and he says this. There once was a man from Northampton Town who stole Glenn Murray's championship scoring crown. His name is Ivan Tony. He can outrun a small pony and his goals will stop Brentford going down. Um... With a hat-trick of limericks now, continues Bryn, does this grant me buffalo status, please? I promise to purchase the Seppi's Menu Buffalo T-shirt from tpublic.com if you bestow such, such an honour on me. Much love, Bryn Griffiths. The limerick and a plug. The plug makes up for the limerick once again, not quite scanning. But still, thank you uh, to Bryn. Uh, do we have a subject that we'd like Bryn to do another limerick on in future? What about Ralph Hasenhutl's waistcoats? Mm. Uh, thank you, Bryn. That is your next task. Ralph Hasenhutl's waistcoats which already fills a whole line of a limerick, I think. Um, Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Now, we've spoken before about the relative futility of attempting to compare two or more different eras of the game, but that won't stop us having another go. This time, we are prompted by the sad passing of Jimmy Greaves, who, for non-British listeners, was the Andy Hinchcliffe of his day, a brilliant footballer turned iconic broadcaster (laughs) and one who is associated with the World Cup that they didn't play enough of a part in. (laughs) that's brilliant I am the modern Jimmy Greaves one of the things that certainly struck me as I scrambled for more accurate information than just the hazy memories of Saturday mornings on ITV in my youth uh, was that his scoring record was extraordinary I said on the radio on Sunday morning that it stood up to scrutiny in even this age of statistics driven football and statistically unparalleled footballers Greaves scored more than 450 goals in 650 odd games including 44 and 57 for his country he was top scorer in the English top flight six times he's still the only player since World War II to score 40 or more in a top flight season in England although there are of course significant differences not just between Andy Hinchcliffe and Jimmy Greaves but indeed Jimmy Greaves and a modern footballer including the spell that he had at AC Milan being cut short because he didn't fancy doing all that running and training at the expense of his extracurriculars something that Joao would not stand for. (laughs) Uh, Jimmy Greaves was an exceptional goal scoring talent but in discussing how exceptional how do we strike the right balance between those historical achievements and the modern game considering how much things have changed since. So we're asking today about rose-tinted versus reality of the modern era. And Stephen suggested this topic, so the floor is yours. Mark Ogden made this point on Twitter in the immediate aftermath of the the news about Jimmy Greaves' death. And it also was a thought that was sparked by 
match of the day two's tributes on Sunday nights. If uh, you live in the UK, you may have seen that when they they put up a couple of graphics which put into context just what a remarkable career Jimmy Greaves had had, and certainly isn't something that I had appreciated before I, I saw the numbers in the context into which they were given. Three hundred and fifty-seven English top flight goals. That's seventy-four more than Alan Shearer. Shearer would have had to have been prolific, what, for another three seasons to have to have overhauled Jimmy Greaves. And there was also then a, a secondary graphic that put his numbers in the context of, of the established big hitters in terms of goals scored. Only Ronaldo and Messi have scored more league goals in the big five in, in European football. And Greaves actually outscored Gerd Muller who, of course, I think, certainly from the point of view of covering the Bundesliga last season when Robert Lewandowski was was closing in on, on Muller's uh, all-time single-season goal-scoring record, that you were suddenly brought to attention just what an astonishingly prolific striker he was. So it did make me think that we talk a lot about Premier League records and I've never been one of those who has felt that that is inappropriate because it's useful to have these occasional lines in the sand to disseminate records and put them into a context which we can appreciate. But what Greaves achieved certainly did make me think, do you know what, when we're talking about Alan Shearer and Ian Wright and the kind of records that Harry Kane is chasing down, we really do need to mention the likes of Jimmy Greaves just to put that into some kind of context as, as to where they stand all time not just where they stand within the Premier League era. Well the thing I know a lot of people get cross about the kind of football started in 1992 thing but I think when in the context of records and, and statistics that there have always been breaks and I mean I remember that in the I guess in the 90s and maybe even the early 2000s before before 1992 became a sort of sufficiently distant yardstick to use it was always since the war. Statistics were always, he scored the most goals in this, that or the other, or she's done this or, or they've done that or whatever, since the war. And it was it was as though football, football did kind of start again in 19, 1946, really. That, that, that was, there, there had been a break in competitive football. So it made sense to people to, to use that as the point at which everything started again. And I presume that before that, there, there may have been statistics used, wouldn't obviously have been on television, but but in the 60s and 70s, maybe not the 60s and 70s, maybe the, maybe in the 50s and 60s, it was, it may have been since the Great War, or it, it may have been since, you know, the, the dawn of professionalism or whatever, you know, that you'd have, you would have been comparing Jimmy Greaves' goal-storing records with Dixie Dean, mm. but not necessarily with someone who played for old Cartusians in, in 1881. You know, you wouldn't... There have always been these breaks built into football history because ultimately, what, 140 years? Quite a long time. And fans like talking about records. People like putting a statistical kind of note on someone's perceived greatness. So it's natural to look for a a water break effectively and say, right, you know, it's, it's 19, for us now, it's 1992. For people in the 90s, it was the war. And it, it wasn't the case that in kind of 1994, we were all banging on about, well, is the, the, he scored the most goals since 1992. Like we had our own, that's what we've all, that's what we've always done to make it, I guess, to make it bite size as much as anything else, to make it manageable and to make the records attainable. When we were getting into football 
certainly speaking on behalf, I think, of, of Hugh and, and Rory as well in, in the 1980s, that thing about, you know, post-war records was something that we heard and certainly read a lot. And I certainly don't ever recall it in Shoot magazine there were any letters complaining that <laughs> what they described in the previous issue ignored what Benedict Chumley Warner was doing in the 1920s. I mean, Charles, Charlie, Charles. <laughs> exactly, yeah. There wasn't, there wasn't an asterisk next to the record to say, oh, by the way, we should remind you that Benedict scored 57 goals in the 1918 season. It, it seemed like a perfectly reasonable line in the sand. And uh, well, so Steve, I, I, I just say, as you, as you were kind of developing your interest in football, was Jimmy Greaves a name that you came across? Do you remember hearing his name when you were younger? Well, this was the other thing, I think, when the news of his death uh, was announced on Saturday that made, made me nostalgic was, was for Saint and Greavesy. Yeah. Because my first exposure to football on television was watching Saint and Greavesy with my yeah. dad. And yeah. I suppose like a lot of people watching Match of the Day now associate Gary Lineker as a, a television presenter and don't necessarily know that he was a prolific centre forward in an earlier life. That was the same for me with, with Jimmy Greaves. I, I, I never watched that programme thinking much, if at all, about the fact that they had both been excellent footballers previously. They, mm. were, they, were, tele, they were football television presenters. And I wonder if that, to an extent, has, for a generation or more, obscured yeah. Greaves' legacy. Yeah. That I mean, I'm the same as Steve. I remember Jimmy Greaves as a... As a TV presenter as the kind of the, the funny one out of him and Saint and Saint and Reevesy was there was a brilliant piece by John Nicholson, friend of the podcast, about Saint and Reevesy being and it's one of those things that was really so good that I regret not doing it myself, not being clever enough to think of it. That Saint and Reevesy was fun. Yeah. It it did not take itself seriously. And this is no in obviously we all work for broadcasters here, so let's not be too critical. But I would suggest that there is a lack of perspective now in the way that football is covered, that everything is treated to that dramatic music, soaring kind of string section, showdown, life and death nonsense. St. Andreevesy was the last TV programme probably that undercut, I guess fantasy football maybe a little bit, was cut from the same cloth and although that I suspect would be deeply problematic nowadays. Um, There'd be maybe one or two others. Soccer AM maybe a little bit in a different way. Football, but even even Soccer AM has a lot of kind of tribal stuff going on within it. So, um, it's a long time since I watched Soccer AM, but was the uh, was Saint the same Greasy seventies eighties? No, eighty five to ninety two. I think. Oh, a bit later than I thought. A lot later. Uh, okay. I don't I don't know this, but it must have yeah. coincided with ITV getting the highlights in nineteen eighty five. Well, mm. Yes, well, the, the big match was on ITV until yeah. 1992 because that was the deal that was ended for Sky to then yeah. take it up for the mm. beginning of the Premier League. So it was, that was kind of ITV's warm-up. And in fact, the, I guess, yeah, it was the warm-up to the weekend. But St. Andrews never took it desperately seriously. They didn't pre- pretend that it was, it was a matter of life and death. Whereas now, if you look at the tone of football coverage, it is all hyper-serious in a way that it probably doesn't have to be. And that may be... This is way off topic, but that maybe is something that isn't taken into consideration enough when we bemoan the standard of kind of social media football discourse. That if you are presenting information to people as though this game, Burnley v Palace, who will survive? That's going to feed into the way people just talk until four forty-five on a Saturday. <laughs> yeah, who exactly. will survive between now and then? Who's going to keep watching? But the, <laughs> I think to an extent, who's got enough coffee? <laughs> Gre- Jimmy Greaves's image to anyone under the age of 45 probably is as a as a as a sort of good humored the, the, the image of, yeah 
but the image is important there because you're, you're you're saying that what he looked like, which was which is an important thing, because you because because Gary Lineker, you can kind of associate him with the player that he was because he is now the, the the kind of the quintessential modern television presenter, and he needs to look like a television presenter. Jimmy Greaves clearly with the problems that he had post career, which he overcame to then become the uh, presenter of Saint Saint Greaves with the Inter John, was the typical old fashioned retired footballer. He had put on a little bit of weight. He'd lost his hair and he'd grown a very very um, an amazing mustache. An, an amazing mustache which is clearly his his identification point for people of our generation when we see him playing he didn't have a mustache so there is such a difference between the the on television jimmy Greaves yeah. to look at mm-hmm. than the, the than the player it's it's much harder to associate the two than the, the the other examples you might be able to give that is all true and the point about the mustache although it sounds ridiculous and glib is probably right that when you when when i watch videos of jimmy Greaves, it doesn't look like jimmy Greaves. jimmy Greaves jimmy Greaves has got a tash why haven't you got a tash? That this guy's just pretending to be Jimmy Greaves. Maybe they just have the same name. <laughs> the, no, but I don't actually. Think it's, I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that deep rooted. I don't think it's that he was a bit chubby. I think that there will be a lot of people now who do not understand how good a player Gary Lineker yeah. was. Mm. Or to be honest, apart from Shearer's, maybe a bit different because of the, the statistical, the fact that he is, you know, the all-time leading Premier League goal scorer. That that gives him a sort of aura of factual, objective greatness. But there'll be a generation who don't remember Shearer playing. Now, there'll be loads of people watching Match of the Day who have been like, well, who's this guy? And certainly with, with Lineker, because Lineker's heyday was mid-80s now. You've got to be quite old to remember. I don't remember Gary Lineker as a player. No, that's not true. I do just remember Gary Lineker as a player. But only just. I only remember remember kind of post-peak Lineker as a player. It's the same with Clough. Like, this country has a massive obsession with Brian Clough. I don't remember Brian Clough being a good manager. I remember Nottingham Forest getting relegated. That's what I remember. So I, I, I was not, I'm not, Steve probably is. Chinch definitely is. I'm not old enough to remember when Clough was this visionary. Mm. I just, I, I, I've had to learn that. Hang on, I was just, just a gentleman. Round one. But the, the, <laughs> what, that's Clough. That's Clough <laughs> fighting back. Right on, just, on the grave, saying. We'll be on the grave. So the, I think that they're going to have to uh, ring that bell again if I have to put up with this suggestion that Rory is a significantly younger than me and b works a lot harder than I do. <laughs> no, you are. You, you're what? Three years older than me. I'm forty-three. So you're four years older than me, oh, and I think. Oh, sorry, I think that, you were right, Rory. I mean that that did, but no, that that isn't a lot in the grand. No Steve wonder you're so fresh faced looking. I mean, taking the, taking Stephen Wyatt's you know achievements into a historical context with the modern Rory Smith is going to be very much a part of our conversation. Yeah, but that that four years is significant. You remember the 1996 World Cup? I don't. Yes, and that, I remember that, the peak Yeah. In in a footballing context, that four years is significant. In in in, to, in the course of our day to day lives, Stephen, it means nothing. But in terms of what you can remember in terms of, in football, it is. And I think that that is significant. That to a whole generation, Greaves became. There'll be a lot of grief for Jimmy Greaves because he was a beloved TV presenter from people who don't remember how good a player he was. You have to take into consideration the fact that a lot of his a lot of his goals were not on television. They weren't not not just not broadcast live. They just weren't on TV at all. There will be a lot of of his goals. That there is no footage of whatsoever. So it's, it's how many how many Jimmy Greaves goals have you actually seen? I'm not like... saying that they weren't. Fact, I, I don't think I've ever seen a Jimmy Greaves goal. And then you look at his record and what he achieved, and you think, how can you not have seen a guy mm. who's done what he's done ever score a goal? Because that's fascinating. You you asked Steve a question, Chinch, earlier about yes. do you remember anything or have seen much of Jimmy Greaves? Yeah, I want to ask you the same question. What was was his name of any relevance no. to you? No, absolutely. Was, Again, I remember. Years displaced. I remember him as the Satan Greaves. I did. Oh, he, he was a footballer, but not to the levels that we've seen. And the, the, again, the stats and 
And I thought, wait a minute, I've never seen, of all the great goal scorers, you kind of, you do go and have a look at maybe a couple of the goals that they score. But with Jimmy Greaves, I don't know, again, has he been slightly lost in a way? Because it's extraordinary what he achieved. And surely some of his, you would have seen one or two of them. I haven't seen a single one of them. So I knew him again more as a TV presenter than an incredible footballer. And I'm obviously a lot older than you guys. There is footage of his You're a lot older than Rory. Yeah. 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 Not a lot older than you. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there is footage of the 1963 uh, Cup Winners' Cup Final, or UEFA Cup, Cup Winners' Cup, Cup Final, winners that, Cup, that yeah, Spurs, yeah. Spurs beat Atletico Madrid 5-1, that Reeves scored twice in. So I've seen those. He's, yeah, he scored I mean, one goal in the 62 um, World Cup as well, didn't he? So, so there are there are bits and bobs, but it's the same with... I mean, that, that applies to players even later than Reeves, that, that the, their greatness is something that is passed down by word of mouth. It's not... Yeah. There's, there's no actual... There's no visual, obviously not... You need to prove it, but there's no visual proof of it. And I think that is hard, especially as the game becomes much more obsessed with 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 the modern era and its current form. Like we we I think in a way that we never used to, we we disregard its its ancient history. And that, that was the thing that struck me about a lot of the coverage of after Greaves Greaves died, was you know, he was described on TV as, as Spurs and Chelsea's greatest ever player. He was talked about in these kind of effusive tones that that, were, that are no doubt warranted. But I do feel that the the, the obsession with contextualising everything as post ninety two, in a way, does those does a lot of those a, yeah. a lot of those players down. That, that we have to have those water breaks. We have to have those lines in the sand, as Steve says, just as we it used to be post war. But maybe we. They 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 do need to come with a bit of an asterisk and to say yeah Alan Shearer is the all time Premier League leading goal scorer but maybe it's incumbent on newspapers or TV stations or whatever to to then put a list up of the actual all time leading goal scorers. But but then this is where perhaps I do put the isn't modern football great and haven't we come a long way hat on because if even Chinch is saying look I don't remember Jimmy Greaves as a player. And I referred to Match of the Day too earlier and, and Chinch, they, they did a wonderful opening tribute to, to Greaves and, and a closer that involved, that, that, that showed a lot of the goals mm-hmm. he scored, those available to them. So if, you want, if, you, if anybody yeah, wants yeah. to see, yeah, yeah. see you know, Greaves in full flight scoring goals, then, then get Match of the Day too on the iPlayer if you're in the UK. But I was, at, I was actually with uh, Steve Houghton, who's uh, the, the editor of Match of the Day 2 earlier, and he sent me the graphic that they, that they used. So, so much of... What we're talking about today, from my point of view, it comes from a conversation with him and 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 what they had the process that they went through in terms of of putting this together to to put into a modern context what he what he achieved. But if you look at some of the they put on the they put on a graphic with the the, the top all time eight goal scorers in English top flight football, Greaves leading the way on three hundred and fifty seven. But some of the other names on there, Steve Bloomer died in nineteen thirty eight, Dixie Dean born in nineteen oh seven. Nat Lofthouse, born 1925. Gordon Hodgson, born in 1904. And Charlie Buchan, who died in 1960. So the only name on that list who was active after, what, the 50s and 60s is Alan Shearer. So this is when you do start thinking, well, hang on a second. How relevant is, is what was achieved in the early part of the 20th century to how we're contextualising football now. Because it's almost unrealistic to think of Harry Kane ever scoring the volume of goals that Jimmy Greaves did. So although it's a, rel- it's a useful part of the conversation, a useful barometer, 
And something that Alan Shearer and Dion Dublin talked about in Match of the Day 2 was what Greaves, the quality of the pitches that Greaves was playing on to be able to have that stability to be able to weave his way through defenders in the way that he did compared to modern pitches. But then you do also need to start thinking, well, hang on a second, football clearly has evolved. It must have got better. The depth of competition, the the bar at which is judged to be the the very standard of the level that players need to be at to compete at the very top, must have been raised because is that not evolution? So is it entirely fair to, to, to be able to judge in what somebody did now to what was being done in the 1920s and 1930s? Well, here's the conflict, because those people who were doing that in the 1920s and 1930s will probably say, that, yes, it is still relevant because they, they experienced that and they went through that. And there will be those in a number of years' time who say that Alan Shearer's um, statistics have value at that point, even though a similar amount of, of time would have passed. But But the conflict is also between the genuinely understandable nostalgicizing, um, which is definitely a word that we should at least trademark, if not put into the dictionary ourselves, manually, every copy of every dictionary, just write it in. But that you, you, you do genuinely have rose-tinted spectacles about something which has happened in the past and time has happened since. So if Jimmy Greaves is one of those examples of somebody who we've forgotten about, it seems to me to be a, a rare thing. You often think about those people at that time as being extra special because of nostalgia. And this is the conversation we had before about trying to apply that to the modern era because nostalgia can be um, a little bit um, misleading. So are we saying that actually Jimmy Greaves is a, it bucks that trend because we have forgotten how good he was and that perhaps even though we need that kind of demarcation point of 1992 because we're obsessed with the best and we need to have Harry Kane at least getting to a point where he will be the best eventually rather than having something so far in the distance that it's never a conversation and therefore it's not content generation generating and not of interest. Is it is it genuinely a point that we should be making that Jimmy Greaves has been forgotten and we should raise people like him up? and compare him directly with the modern game because it stands up to scrutiny in the way that others might not or other situations might not because we have spent too much time nostalgicizing. I think it is vitally important that you don't forget history. We don't forget our past. And to make sure we don't allow these names to be forgotten, that wasn't the point I was trying to make earlier. I just do think that those who go, oh, look, football existed before 1992. Yes, they are right. And yes, that comes into the conversation. But it's difficult to compare the, the football of the modern era with what happened 50, 60 years ago. And, and I'm sure it will be absolutely the same in another 50 or 60 years time to, to compare what players are doing then with, with what Harry Kane is doing now. There will there will be another line in the sand at some point, won't there? By which, almost like the records will be set reset. Do you, do you think it will be like post? Which would be like post the reorganisation of the Champions League. It would be post the launch of Set Piece Menu as a podcast. Mm. It could December twenty sixteen is a very significant. Yeah, it could be kind of post post Super League protest. Maybe maybe after the retirement of Messi and Ronaldo. It could be any, and it, it, that's really interesting to think. I never thought of that. It's really interesting to think that in. 40, not even that, 30 years, 25 years, we'll be sitting around saying, well, you can't disregard what Shearer did just because, just because <laughs> it was in the 1990s. Well, they, they, well what do the players, because I'm genuinely interested in what the players think, because if there is a demarcation point that has allowed us to have this conversation about people 
you know, achieving records in just the Premier League era, which makes them, it, you know, just by definition, it makes them more relevant because they're not being lost in this massive, great big ocean of statistics that come from 100 years ago. But do the players care? Because Chinch, you had, you had the assists record for a defender for a while, then mm. Leighton Baines matched it, then then Trent Alexander-Arnold beat it. Now, I don't know what the post-war to 1992 assists record for a defender <laughs> in the top flight was. Nobody cared. No one cares. <laughs> but the fact we, is, we could, we could I be, cared we, about you. I came top of a category that no one cares about. That we sums my sure career that it was up. held by somebody who played on Merseyside. That's all we can be certain of. <laughs> yes, I, exactly. I do think players do, if you're looking, it's how far... A player, even a modern player, would look back and say, well, that has some relevance to what I'm doing today. If you go beyond maybe 20 years, I still think players would think, well, that was that was not really the football that I'm playing today. So you can't you can't say, well, are they better than I? I think time does play, uh, certainly for the player, time does, does play a huge part in how they view. And they would that, that's the thing that astonished me about Jimmy Greaves is, to me, when did he play his last game, Jimmy Grease? Was it in the... 70-71, I think. 70, he did come so back and play some non-league games for Barnet. So but, early yeah. 70s. But again, when I started playing in the late... Eight, even even that would be kind of, well, it was so long ago that you can't relate it. He clearly is scoring goals. In, in football was completely different. And it's no surprise he scored gazillions of goals because football was a bit rubbish back then. But clearly it wasn't. It wasn't because, again, you go back and watch those games, you see it was a different type of football, but it still has a relevance. But I think as a player, you always try to, not myself, but I think the, the great players tend to think that you are breaking the mould, you are something different, you're doing something different, you are better than players of the past. And that's how you maybe set yourself up. So you do slightly belittle what came before, and certainly if it's 20, 30, 40 years in the past, you tend to just think, well, that's not the football I'm playing today, so it right. doesn't have any relevance. But clearly, it does. I think there may be, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years. Is there a cutoff point just in terms of decades where we should say we can't go back to the 30s and take records from then and talk about them and compare them to Alan Shearer? Is that is that too much time? Is it too well, different? Harry Kane, yeah. I'm assuming, is going for Harry. Is going yeah, for yeah. Alan Shearer, not for for Jimmy Green. Yeah, but equally, so the obvious the obvious point on this is that, and Steve alluded to it earlier, that is Chinch is right. It looks like a different sport to an extent. It is a different sport, but they were dealing with awful pitches. Yeah. Have you ever kicked an old football? Jesus Christ, it it hurts. Like Harry Kane doesn't know he's born compared to kicking around one of those big heavy things. I thought you were going to say, if you ever kicked an old football, Jesus Christ could really hold the ball up well. But you were just, it was an expletive. Sorry, I got it, confused. Yeah. There was Jesus Christ. He was good at crossing. Oh, lovely stuff. But then Rory, like you mentioned, look, absolutely right. That's 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 a, a good point about the footballs. But then you'd say, well, look, is that why goalkeepers weren't so good at saving them? Well, I'm not getting away at that. Block. Yeah, that, that's true. But it's, all, but it's all to do with balance. And he, he mentioned Steve Bloomer, who was the, the sort of the prototype best in like 1908 and you can read all about Steve Bloomer's story in the book Mr by Rory Smith the um but Bloomer was playing before they changed the offside rule so the fact that Bloomer got all those goals when you basically couldn't go anywhere near the goal unless there were th it was three not two so it, all, most of Bloomer's goals came before 25 which is when they switch sw switch the offside rule they should count more because they they were objectively infinitely harder to score than any goal after that Equally, players playing after the abolition of the back pass rule, mm -hmm. or the introduction of the back pass rule, I suppose, depending on which way you look at it. That is a fundamental change. They, to be honest, they, that makes more sense. In, and that was 92 as well. That makes much more sense as a cut-off point 
for especially goal-related statistics than the start of the Premier League, which was, it was not like the Premier League was bigger or smaller or whatever than the old first division. The back pass rule fundamentally changed the fabric of the game. So that, that lends a veneer of intellectual validity to the idea that that is a natural cutoff point. The, to me, that stuff always balances out. So obviously the game is quicker and slicker and technically better and teams are better organised and all that stuff. The, and the, the competitive level broadly is higher now than it was when Steve Bloomer was playing. Steve Bloomer would have played against some proper car horses, possibly literally. And the... <laughs> That player's got four legs. He's got, he's, got, he's got a massive horse. It's a hell of a defensive wall you've set up there. The, but equally, the defensive wall in hands. Equally, I'd love, to, I'd love to see Harry Kane. How many goals Harry Kane would have scored if he played under the old offside rule? And we, with the and with the back pass rule, we do we do tend to pick and choose though, don't we? So, for example, if if there is a regular repeating goal scoring record that we need to to make our reference point smaller or, or or less early, more recent. But when, when Arsenal went the whole season unbeaten, the reference point was Preston, Preston. back in the 1890s. 1880. 1888. 1888. There you go. In the first, yeah, in the first season of the, of the Football League, and it was 12 games or whatever. And so. were, I mean, Preston were playing against like, people who like, were working in factories that morning. And it sounds more impressive. So again, you're just picking and choosing when, yeah. you, who you, what you, when you put it up against or who you put it to make it sound more impressive. The first, the first unbeaten top flight season in 120 years or something like that. Well, hang on a minute. If you're, if you're comparing that and that and, and, and understanding that it is cart horses to racehorses then you oh then you, nice then you can't then say well hang on a minute i'm only referring back to alan shearer's record if you're if you're a goal scorer mm-hmm. is that what where, where's the consistency in that and is it simply because of the regularity of goal scoring records being broken or having relevance well it's also because of an obsession with 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 finding records watching spurs chelsea at the weekend there was a point in which martin tyler said that um, and again not to criticize anyone's colleagues but said chelsea are on the verge of a little piece of history here as someone was taking a corner uh, and I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. I wonder what this is. And he said, it's going to be their sixth sixth consecutive win in a London derby, away win in a London derby. And you think that is not, that is not a piece of history. That really isn't a piece of history. That is just a thing that is happening. Like Marcos Alonso wasn't that, taking that corner thinking, do you know what, we need to hang on to this because the record breakers. <laughs> um, but, so there is an obsession with finding those those records. And you're right, we, we pick and choose when we refer to the past, either because we want to make the records a thing, we want to make it a thing that is relevant, but also we want to, sometimes you want to kind of show how significant an achievement is in the in the, the grand sweep of history. But just saying it's the first unbeaten season since 1992 in 2004 does not sound very impressive. Saying it's the first unbeaten season since 1888 really does. And perhaps makes it gives it a bit a better context, a more precise context than saying this is the first ever unbeaten season, because to an extent you can't count Preston's achievement in the same way as Arsenal's, because Preston was in a team was in a league of twelve teams, one of whom was Darwin, who were not in an era when when the teams were not were basically not professional in any way that we would recognise. To me, the bigger thing Charles is Charles Darwin was it a one man team. Charles Darwin, he had no a, chance to do. That's, that's a local rivalry him, with Preston. Him and a, him and a, him and a load of beagles. The, <laughs> the other the other <laughs> the other thing about that comparison, though, Rory, of course, is that at least Preston are still a modern club, aren't they? That people know and have yeah. heard. So comparing yeah. what Arsenal did, if if that record, if the if the previous unbeaten 
team during the course of an entire season had been the Royal Engineers or yeah. Gloss at North End, then it might not have been such a tasty headline. Exactly. But I think the bigger thing to me that the grief, that Jimmy Greaves' death kind of bore out is we have to. We, I think we do have to find a way of recognising... Football's really bad with its history. It, we, football is really bad at curating... And, and narrating its own history. There is, there, there is, there is far too, I think the, the US sports are way ahead of us in terms of this. And maybe it's because that their history doesn't go back quite as far in terms of kind of professional or professionally organised leagues. But football has it's to find it's a all way. Available, the archive's all available in colour, Rory. Yeah, that might be, that might, might well be it, that, that there's too much black and white. But we have to find a bit of a way of, of contextualising the achievements of people who are, who were pre-92, who were before that line in the sand, who, so that we don't when so that when they die effectively it's not like oh my god he was good at football people should know that jimmy greaves is the all-time leading top flight scorer i am a professional football journalist and did not know that i didn't yeah again i think he has been slightly but surely he has to be in the conversation about great goal scorers it's not about he should be anyway shouldn't he it's not really he has to be so this is why Harry Kane should be going for Jimmy Greaves's record. Yes, yes. Harry in Kane my mind, shouldn't yes. be going for Alan Shearer's record, and and that that is a, no. a way we can do exactly what Rory just suggested in contextualising. Not we're not we're not broadening it out to any great extent, which is you know names from 150 years ago that don't have any relevance, like Corinthians or the Royal Engineers or anything like that. We it, we are bringing a name into the conversation that allows us to contextualise it still with relevance, but lift up those people who will be forgotten by having this line in the sand in 1992. <laughs> Harry Kane can go for Shearer's record, not least as it's closer. Although the, the one thing actually we should say about Shearer is Steve quite rightly said that Shearer would, would have had to be productive for three more years had he to get anywhere near Greaves. But Shearer did miss at least three years through injury, although Jimmy Greaves did retire at 31, which suggests that Jimmy Greaves probably should have had two or three more years of mm-hmm. yeah. showing a bucket load of goals in him. So it, it, that, that, it isn't impossible that someone will come along and, and match that record. Jimmy Greaves held the European record for goals scored in the top flight until Ronaldo came along. And I presume Messi must now have passed it as well. So it shows that those truly great records are gettable. And in a way, it's a shame that that wasn't a thing. Not that, you know, the kind of all-time European goal scoring record wasn't a thing. Not, not just for Greaves, who should have been remembered for having it, but for Ronaldo and Messi, that is a way of putting their achievements in, yeah. in genuine context yeah. and legitimate context. I, I, I think it would be fair enough for Kane to be going for Shearer's record, and that gives you the, the, the enticement of the fact that it's possible, it's realistic. It, it seems odd that there is no way that people can't just say, and of course, you know, if yeah. he continues storing for an even greater lick, he might, he might, be able, might yet get within sight of Jimmy Greaves' all-time record. That shouldn't be impossible to... That, that's not so nuanced as to be unappealing. It's, it's perfectly reasonable for the, the top line to be Harry Kane is now just five goals away from Alan Shearer's Premier League goal-scoring record, but remains 80-odd behind Jimmy Greaves' yeah. all-time top-flight record. Mm. Yeah. They, 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 can, they don't have to all be thrown in together as one entity. You can talk about them separately, providing the context... Is there, and, and it's, a, it's an excellent point that Rory makes about Ronaldo and Messi because that does help bring the modern game in line with with what's happened in the now seemingly distant past. Because you, you're talking about the numbers that they've put up, they've gone beyond Greaves, they've gone behind Gerd Muller, so it it is achievable in the modern game. 
and and that should that's why it should be part of the conversation when we're talking about what's happening in the Premier League. I suppose you are right in terms of the next great break in terms of goal scoring records will be when Messi and Ronaldo retire. Who scores the goals from there on in? Yeah, yeah, it will be the there will be there will be a a desire to find records that people can match realistically, and yeah. there will be records that effectively exclude Ronaldo and Messi. Yeah. It was interesting when when Cristiano Ronaldo scored against West Ham, Sky put on his all-time scoring tally at that point. He has now scored 759 games in 883, but you know, that, that sort of thing. You, you never get that. And uh, that is a, a way of contextualising an all-time figure, mm. which is actually helpful, but only possible because of the achievements of, of Ronaldo and Messi and how, how much of an outlier they both are. It's funny how unchallenged that fi- those figures are for Ronaldo and Messi, whereas when Pele or Romario claim to have scored X number of goals, it's always like, yeah, well, he scored some of them in his, in his garden. Ronaldo scored loads of his international goals against like Andorra and San Marino. They shouldn't count, but they do. So maybe the goals in Pele's garden should be, should be considered valid. It's, as, it's, it's as we know, Andorra were house guests at the time. So well, Exactly, uh... <laughs> yeah, and he, he, just, he just arranged the game. No, but, you know, Pele claims a lot of goals from... From kind of state leads and, and local local leads and all, and all that stuff and we we tend to be like well the, it's like here's the asterisk to this achievement but that's not really fair because you yeah you have to put you have to put all of these records in context so and, and this is not for a second to question the greatness of ronaldo and messi but how do you weight the fact that ronaldo and messi were playing for dominant teams at all times in their careers to the fact that Pele was certainly initially playing for a Santos team that probably wasn't dominant. How do you weight the fact that whereas Messi gets to dribble through all these players because he's brilliant, if Pele had tried that, someone would have broken his leg? Mm. The, the, the player perhaps to keep an eye on, and it's a shame that he will probably jump from one country to another over the course of, of his career, so we'll, we'll not get close to single mm. league records, but Erling Haaland, who has scored 47 goals in his first 48 Bundesliga games, Robert Lewandowski had 17 goals at the same point of the early stages of his career in the Bundesliga. And he's talked about as being second only, well, he is second only to, to Gerd Müller in terms of, of Bundesliga goals. So Erling Haaland might offer us a decent barometer in 10 or 15 years' time as to where he stands against Gerd Müller and Jimmy Greaves and to whether he's ever going to get close to Ronaldo Messi numbers. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is an Andy Tells the Tale from his playing on broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel where the details are moved. Well, there's been a lot of talk on this pod about age and time and, and memory. So it's quite apt that this little story kind of ties in with that and how much I've conveniently or not necessarily intended to forget about my career. So I'm, I'm working with, with Gary Weaver, excellent commentator, Aston Villa against Everton. And we're having a chat before the game and he's talking about a couple of strikers and a couple of records that they set. And there's a quick question for you. There's only two Premier League players that have scored Premier League hat-tricks of headers. Would you happen to know who those two Premier League players are? Ian Orman Droid and Peter Crouch. No and no. Les Ferdinand. No. Shearer. No. Ronaldo. 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 He's, no. uh, he's a good header He is. He is. But there's only two Premier League players. Give us a a clue. Give us a clue. Both are now at the same club in different capacities. Oh, it's an excellent clue, but takes Premier League club. Duncan Ferguson. Correct. Oh. 
good question. This this is not even the the soccer story. It's just to, just to get us started. <laughs> but this is fun. interesting. The only other Premier League striker who scored a hat trick of headers in a match plays for oh, Everton. Sal- Salomon Rondon. Salomon Rondon. Ah. So Gary was telling me the story about Duncan Ferguson scoring hat trick of headers, and apparently when Salomon Rondon arrived at the club. Uh, Duncan, obviously, in his capacity as a coach, talking to the players and saying, you know, we both... And Rondon didn't realise this either, that he was only one of two players. So he's talking about getting the ball in the box for Rondon and he can do what I did. And uh, Gary Weaver said to me, oh, the game he scored the hat-trick of headers in was uh, against Bolton, uh, 28th of December, 1997. And I said, oh, I I left Everton in, in January 98. So I was around that time. Um, so you think yeah, it's quite an important, quite an important game then. If he's got a hatch, something that you would remember. I said I can't have played in that. I must have been at the theatre, the operating theatre. But uh, I, I actually did play. We got it up on YouTube. I actually did play in the match. I passed the ball to Nick Barnby to cross for one of Duncan's he- second header. So I think that was an assist to an assister. So I'm going to count that assist. secondary assist. I think I'll have that. But I, I, I was, I was excellent. I didn't know who the hell's that left back. That's me. Extraordinary. But it was not just important for the fact that Duncan Ferguson scored a hat trick of headers in that match, which I should remember anyway. Really, it was actually my last game for Everton as well before I left, and I'd completely forgotten both things. <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? That's re- how can you forget your, your last game? I remember what my last game, competitive game, was for Sheffield Wednesday against Crew. When we beat them, absolutely spanked them 1 0. But I, I think I came off and then we scored and won. But yeah, I remember my last game ever. But, you know, Gary was telling me, well, I said, absolutely no recollection of it. Clearly can't have played. Oh, yes, you did. And he also said, well, I've just checked the stats here. That was actually your last Everton game just after Christmas. Completely forgotten that as well. So I suppose in, a, in, a, in an illustrious career of, of over 450 matches, you're bound to forget the odd one. So beating Bolton 3 2 is probably not a terrible game to forget but actually because it was my last Everton match and Duncan Ferguson set is the first player to score a hat-trick of headers in, in a Premier League game but if you watch the match back the the I assisted Nick Barnby if you look at Duncan's second goal the ball is about six inches off the ground yet he heads it in <laughs> it would have been clearly easier just to side foot it home but he heads it from about six inches off the ground to make it 2-0 I think Unbelievable. But again, my memory is what is going on. I just can't remember significant points in my career and my life. And you know why Duncan Ferguson did that? It's because he was very much aware of going back to World War II. There had been no hat-tricks of headers between yes. then and now. And he wanted to make sure that he made some history. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And also buy the merch at tpublic.com. Just search for Setpiece Menu and SPM. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, to Andy and to Rory and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Setpiece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I wonder how much of his career change has forgotten. <laughs> Was it, was it a particularly good Chinese takeaway that maybe filled up your memory that night? Actually, why? Because there must have been talk of an imminent big move on the horizon. So, you know, maybe I was just thinking distracted. about other things. Distracted, probably. You know, there's, a, there's the a bright lights of Sheffield. Yeah, £2.75 million move. You know, big, big move. You know, everyone was talking about it. Maybe I just, you know, just got a bit carried away and forgot thinking to. Thinking about how many, how many Kit Kats you could wangle out of Ron Atkinson. Ah, that was just, that was, that was all in the future, but only a month away. So yeah. Tantalisingly, a month away from You'd a plate of Kit Kats. left the building, Chin. I had, I had, the, yeah. The, the mm. Kit Kats were, so they would have been in January of 1998. So, so Mrs. Yes. Atkinson was wearing a gold lame suit. Yes. In January is that yes. suitable attire for that sort of climate? Well, she was, she was indoors and they do have central heating. 
Um, so you know she wasn't she wasn't outside. So there's every reason that she could dress both fashionably and lightly. She it's wasn't trying to sign Steve Bloomer. I've always, I've always, I've always pictured you as having the Kit Kat meeting, as I think of it, yeah. on um, on a patio in, yes, the, su- me in the sunshine. Too. That's Outside how I the sunshine, it, yeah. and hence no. the, the the danger of the Kit Kats yeah. melting. But clearly, it's January, so there was no danger. So they'd only inside, melt if yeah. you were fisting them. Well, I think if you were oh, grabbing them in your hands. Oh, thank God for that! Yeah, yeah, that, that that's what you meant, wasn't <laughs> yeah, it? Not if you were, clarification. Not if I'm you sure were, yeah. Ron did have a patio <laughs> out the back of his house, and there was like a. a, a, a it was like a, like a, not a forest, but it was kind of a wooded area. And he used, to, he used to go and thwack golf balls into it. And I never really understood why. But maybe he just liked thwacking golf balls into, into woods. Yeah. So he did use his patio, but we didn't use it that day. We would have needed a, an outside heater. It was perishingly cold. But it, was, it certainly warmed up when the contract talk started. Really did. It was hot stuff. It really, I can't remember what we drank. Yeah, probably sangria Ta- or something like that. Tizer. No, an oval Fanta team. or sangria, I think it would have been, yeah. That would have been suitable for the occasion.